Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Al-Fatihi lima uglik wa khatimi lima sabaq. Nasrul haqi bil haqi wal hadi ila saratika mustaqim. Wa ala alihi haqqa qadirihi wa miktarihi al-azim. O Allah, we ask you to send your blessings upon our master Muhammad, the opener of what was closed and the seal of what came before him, champion of the truth by the truth and guide to the straight path, and upon his family and companions as is befitting his noble rank. Ameen. Allahumma ya kareem akramna bi nur faham wa akhrajna min dhulumatul waham wa la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. O Allah, the noble, the generous, we ask you to ennoble us with the light of understanding and to remove us from the shadows of illusion. And there is no power nor might except through God. Ameen. All right, welcome back. Good to have you all here. Um, we are in the section of this class where we discuss Iman. And uh, Iman is defined for us in the Hadith of Jibreel. Uh, where the angel Gabriel comes to the Prophet وسلم, and he says, inform me of Iman. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, he responds, Iman is to believe in Allah. It is to believe in his angels. It is to believe in his books, his messengers, the day of judgment and the divine decree, both the good and the evil thereof. And so now we have discussed Allah We've discussed the angels. Last week, we discussed the books and the messengers. And this week, we're going to talk about the last day, the day of judgment. And with each of these topics, you know, we've been talking about like why it is that we're commanded to believe in these things, in addition to God himself, right? Because we think about our belief. We tend to think about our testimony of faith, the shahada. And the Shahada simply states that there is nothing worthy of worship except for God, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. So why is it that in this Hadith, and in fact, at multiple th points throughout the Quran, when God talks about belief in him, he is also talking about belief in angels, in his books and in his messengers. And now on the final day, and as we'll talk about next week, the divine decree, meaning like divine will, predestination. Why are we commanded to believe in these things? And, you know, these are things that are signs, first of all. They, these are signs that God has placed in creation that if you look to them, you will be pointed straight to God. That is one of the reasons we are commanded to believe in them. We understand that everything is a sign from God Ultimately, you can look out at Lake Michigan. That is a sign from God that will remind you of God. If you uh, go and you stare at it, it, it's a beautiful thing. And that beauty will point you towards God. But these are also things that give us a correct understanding of who God is. So many of us have the false perception, just for example, that 
God is this sort of angry father that is always watching and waiting to punish us. And that becomes a very difficult belief to sustain when you understand who the messengers are. God sent messengers to every people on the face of the earth throughout history, calling them to him. And these messengers are the greatest thing that God put in his creation. They're greater than the angels. And so the fact that God sent messengers to us, first of all, tells us one thing about God, which is that he wants us to be guided. He wants what is good for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to spend our time in this world in a way that is beneficial to us. Um, so how can you believe that God wants to punish you when you understand who messengers are and you understand that God sent 124,000 of them to earth? How could God possibly want to punish you? How could God possibly want anything but good for you when you understand who the messengers are? And not only that, but he made his messengers human beings like us, meaning that we can relate to them, but not only can we relate to them, but we can actually emulate them. We can strive to be like them, that human beings are in fact a magnificent creation that have the capacity within them to be just as good as the best creations that God placed in the universe. So why would God want to punish a creation of his like that. So these things that we're talking about, which are obligatory to believe in, we have to believe in the messengers. We have to believe in the day of judgment. You start to get an idea of why they become obligatory for us to believe in, because they give us correct belief in God. They tell us who God really is. And so the day of judgment is like this too. It tells us something very important about God, uh, and about ourselves. And when it comes to ourselves, the first thing that it is probably telling us is that this is all going to come to an end, right? This world had a beginning, and this world will have an end. Only God is eternal. Only God has no beginning, and only God has no end. And we didn't get into the details of our Akita this time in the class our theology, our creed. But one of the things that you learn is that every created thing must have a beginning. And so therefore, every created thing must also have an end. That this is part of God's will for his creation, that everything comes to an end. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. And so we start to look, you know, like what, what is it in this world that could be solid? What is it in this world that we can actually cling to that, that will be a stable point of reference for us? And we find nothing. So what do we do? We start to look beyond this world. And that is when we find God. And we find the one who has no beginning. We find the one who has no end. It also tells us that life has meaning. Right? Life has a meaning, not just the meaning that we make ourselves in this world, but it has a meaning that transcends this world. All of our actions, everything that we do in this life will be judged, and, 
And God says this in the Quran, like those things that like you disagree about in this life, I will inform you of their meaning on that day. I will inform you about what you used to do. I will tell you the true meaning of your life. You may not see it while you're in this life, but everything that you do here in this world, it has a meaning and you're going to find out about it. You will see it as it really is. And that's the next thing, that everything in this world has an unseen reality, right? There's a reality to everything. And it's not always apparent to us what it is, but we will see it on that day. So, for example, I could lie to you, right? I could say words to you that I am presenting to you as being the truth, and maybe they sound very believable. And you believe me. You cannot tell just because of the types of words that are coming out of my mouth or the expression on my face as I say them, that they are a lie. Things in this world are not always as they seem. Things on that day will be exactly as they seem. You will be able to identify a liar by the way that they look on that day. And we'll, we'll get into that. There's actually some pretty explicit examples of that. But on that day, we will see things as they actually are. Reality will become unveiled for us. So, um, you know, the day that we're talking about is pretty, uh, it's a pretty heavy topic. And I want to talk about that heaviness before we jump into it, because oftentimes we get put off when we talk about things like punishment, when we talk about things like trial, when we talk about those aspects of God's nature that are identified with his Jalali nature, God's majestic nature. And we've talked about, you know, the two sides to many of his names. He has his beautiful names, his Jamali names, and then he has his majestic names, the Jalali names. It's really fun to talk about the Jamali names. Uh, and I think oftentimes that's what we come looking for, especially in our religious spaces. Like we are attracted to spaces where God's beauty is emphasized because like, why do we want to think about the hardship? Why do we want to think about the possibility of punishment? Why do we want to think about the reality that we will stand before God in judgment one day? Well, I've mentioned before that this beauty and this majesty can be thought of as like the two wings with which you can fly to God. You need the balance. You need the balance. You can't focus on one over the other. And, you know, it's, it's just as much of a fault to focus too heavily on God's majesty because you become paralyzed, right? And becoming paralyzed isn't going to do anything for you. That's not going to take you to God. That will stall you from getting to him. But we need to understand that this day exists and that most of how we will experience it will be through the attributes of God's majesty. It will not be pleasant. It's going to be frightening to exist on this day. But I want to suggest that rather than using this word fear, which is often used uh, in connection with God's majestic nature, 
that we substitute the word fear with the word all. When we think of fear, we tend to think of situations in our lives where we are being manipulated. Like in this country right now, like uh, at this particular historical juncture at which we find ourselves, fear more often than not, whether we experience it in like a domestic setting or it's you know through our interactions with the government or what have you, fear is usually something that is coercive. It's meant to get you into line. And that's not actually the nature of what is going on here when we're talking about God's majesty. It's not there just to demand your conformity. It's bigger than that. And that's what I like about the word all, because the word all implies fear. Like fear is certainly a part of all, but all is bigger than that. All contains a sense of wonder, a sense of humility. Like you see, um, you know, if you've ever been in the presence of a wild animal, like not at the zoo, but like in the wild, that is an awe-inspiring experience. That is something where you are afraid. You're afraid, but you're not just afraid. You're also having uh, this experience of your finitude, of how limited you are, of how incapacitated you are. Like I, I was a Boy Scout. I think I've talked about this before in this class. I was a Boy Scout. I went hiking for two weeks once with the Boy Scouts out in New Mexico. And, you know, they told us, uh, if you come across a bear, there, there's a certain process that you need to go through to make sure that you aren't attacked or to rather, I should say, to minimize your chances of being attacked. Does anyone know what you do if you encounter a bear in the wild? You get, get big and loud, that's right. It's completely counterintuitive. It's, it goes against like your instinct in that moment. But what you don't wanna do is turn your back to them and start running away. That's what your instinct is gonna tell you to do because bears see that and that and like any predator sees that, like what do they see when they're chasing their prey? The back of their head running away from them. So they see something like that and it's like kill instinct comes right on. So you stand your ground, you get as big as you can and you get as loud as you can and you just, and this is if the bear's charging you, right? If the bear is just over there chilling, like, you know, you kind of just back away from it. But if the bear charges you, you want to stand your ground. And it's a really hard thing to do. Thank God I've never had to do it. But I did encounter a bear. And the bear saw me. And it, it was this moment where, you know, I was afraid. But I was more than afraid. You know, like I realized whether or not I live or die in this moment is completely beyond my control. I'm not in control of my life right now. Like if that bear wants me to live, I'm going to live. If that bear wants to eat me, that bear is going to eat me. Like I, I'm pretty sure there's nothing I can do against it. Um, so you have this feeling of like powerlessness of like, wow, like 
you know, people say that their, their life flashes before their eyes in those moments. Like you literally go from your beginning all the way to your end. You see it all. This is what people say anyway, right? Um, you think about the fact that you had a beginning and that you were going to have an end. That is all. And it, honestly, there is a component of that feeling that is actually quite beautiful. Like there is an element of God's majesty that is also beautiful, just as there is an element of his beauty that is also majestic, right? But we, this word fear, I think, you know, it sells God's majesty short. So this is what we're talking about when we experience that day, right? When we're talking about the day of judgment, that is going to be an all-inspiring day. And there will be fear, but it's bigger than that. We will understand our own createdness on that day. Um, by the way, I think this is why, you know, this is my theory. I think this is why a lot of people like horror movies. Because like, you know, our lives are so mundane, like the day-to-day, -day, the in, the out. It's incredibly... Um, boring oftentimes and I've, I've always noticed like when i watch a horror movie it's like why do people like to be horrified because it kind of snaps you out of like this normal mode of like living you're like wow like the, the world can actually be a scary place it can be an uncanny place right and oftentimes like these these elements that are frightening in horror movies they're jalali they are all inspiring. They're things that make you think about the fact that you're going to end one day. That's my theory on why people like horror movies. I love horror movies. And I've thought a lot about why it is I like being horrified. But I think that's part of it. It, it sort of like awakens this part of us that like we don't really interact with that much. But this is an essential part of us. Feeling awe is an essential part of us because that is an essential part of understanding who God is. So the day of judgment is actually one of our lives. So like we are living a life right now, and this is but one of five of our lives. And so this is very important to understand. This is going to be almost like, uh, you know, a, a full cycle for us. And depending on who you are, the day of judgment, this day, this life that we live may feel incredibly short, or it may feel like 50,000 years. It may feel like it is much longer than the existence that we live in this world. But we live a life before our conception. This is where our souls are circling around the throne of God, right? And, and God says that they circle his throne in ranks like we, there are souls that we are close to in that world, which is why if you ever meet someone in this world and you, you click with them automatically, you, you feel like you've known them forever. It, it's because you were together in that world. That's why. That's why you feel that connection with them. But then we come and we have uh, the life. Some people say this is one of the lives, the life of the womb. The life that, that is a life unto itself, the life that babies live in their mother's womb. And then we're born into this world. And then we pass from this world. 
and we enter into an existence that in Arabic is called the barzakh. Uh, literally, a barzakh is like an isthmus, which is geologically, it's like a, it's a piece of land that connects two larger pieces of land. The analogy here being that like this life that we live after we pass from this world, it's, it's just a short interlude before we get to the day of judgment. I won't talk too much about the barzakh, but um, the barzakh is a, uh, in many ways, it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on the day of judgment. It can be a, a beautiful, we call this the life of the grave. And it, it's often, you know, it sounds kind of depressing, the life of the grave, like not, not on my bucket list to go experience the life of the grave, but it can be a beautiful, blissful existence, um, or it can be a foretaste of punishment in the next life. And so it's, uh, it's an existence that can go either way. It can really go either way. Whereas this life, you know, this life is a, um, while it has its hardship, right? There is certainly hardship in this life. We live in a world where um, we actually have the opportunity to build something beautiful. We get to live a good life. We get to work for an afterlife that is going to be beautiful and pleasing and eternal, right? So this world is mostly characterized by good. Um, and as you see, like the closer you get to the day of judgment, the, the more it is characterized, not by God's beauty, but by his majesty. So let's talk about the day of judgment. Let's talk about what happens on that day. And I'm not going to tell you everything that we have on this day, because there's actually quite a bit. If this is an interesting subject to you, I would really recommend a book called The Lives of Man by Imam al-Haddad, um, where he actually talks about the five different lives that we live. It's a fascinating book. But he relates um, a lot of the hadith or the narrations of the Prophet وسلم, uh, about the day of judgment. And so I'm taking selections from this book. And I'm not going to talk about everything, um, but I'm going to be skipping ahead to different areas that I think are particularly important. Um, so we are raised, first of all, on that day, we will be raised back up. We're raised back to life. And we are raised much the same way that we are born. Um, and there is a hadith about this that is, you know, it's somewhat humorous. It's like, it's kind of sweet because it's a conversation between the Prophet وسلم, and his wife Aisha. And he said to Aisha, Anha, that mankind shall be resurrected barefoot, naked, and uncircumcised, with women mixing with the men. And at this, Aisha, may God be pleased with her, exclaimed, Oh, shame, each, other, uh, each looking at each other? And he replied, the situation will be too desperate for them to be worried about that. So, you know, this is sort of like the note that this day is starting on. Like people have nightmares about being naked in front of a crowd of people, right? Like this is a common nightmare. Like imagine a situation that is so stressful. It's like so dire that that does not concern you. Like you have bigger things to worry about. 
Like any situation, any room that you walked into in this world, you think about it, and you look down and see that you're naked, that's your biggest problem at that moment. That <laughs> you are going to solve that problem before you solve any other problems that are pressing you, right? You're going to put some clothes on as quickly as you can. Immediately when you're raised, the situation is way, way too serious for you to care about being naked and seeing everyone else around you naked. But this is how we are raised. And I mentioned that in this life, right? It's a different life. It's unlike this life. In this life, things are not always as they appear. In that life, things will be exactly as they are. So the reality of people, like the people or the realities that people live, that they manifested, will be apparent on that day. And so there are three groups of people described in a hadith that are to be gathered on the day of rising. Those who will ride, like on a horseback, those who will walk on their feet, and those who will walk on their faces. And the Prophet said, for the one who made them walk on their feet is capable of making them walk on their faces. Like, what does that mean, to walk on your face? Well, it's kind of hard to imagine, but God made us walk on our feet. He can make us walk on our face. Mu'adh ibn Jabal, one of the great companions of the Prophet, he said, I once asked, O Messenger of God, what of the saying of God, the High and the Majestic, on the day when the horn is to be blown and you shall come in hosts? And the Prophet said, O Mu'adh ibn Jabal, you have asked about a formidable thing. And then he wept. The Prophet, peace be upon him, wept thinking about this day, because this day is a hard day, right? It's, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be frightening. And just thinking about it was enough to make the messenger of God weep. And then he said, 10 different kinds of people of my nation, of my nation. These are Muslims that we're talking about here. He said, 10 different Kinds of people from my nation will be gathered in groups distinct from the groupings of the Muslims. Their forms will have been changed. Some will have the forms of monkeys, others the forms of pigs, others will be upside down with their legs upwards being dragged on their faces. Some will be blind, hesitant, others will be deaf and dumb, lacking in reason. Others still will be chewing their tongues which will hang on their chests and their saliva will be pus, so that they disgust the other people of the gathering. Some will have their hands and feet cut off, and some will be crucified on tree trunks of fire. Some will be fouler than putrid cadavers, and some will wear flowing robes of tar. And now he's going to tell us what each of these groups of people are. He says, as for those who resemble monkeys, they are slanderers. They're ones who tell lies about other people to destroy their reputations. Those who have the forms of pigs are the people of ill-gotten, illicit, or unlawfully taxed money. So you take money that isn't yours, right? You oppress people by making their financial situation more difficult than it ought to be. Those whose heads and faces are beneath them are those who consumed usury. 
The blind are those who ruled tyrannously, tyrannously. So every tyrannical ruler, every oppressor, they're going to be blind on that day. And we're talking about Muslims here, by the way. Like the Prophet وسلم, said, these are the people of my nation, right? So like, there's no like, get out of jail free card, like you're in the Muslim club, like you can act how you want. Like, no, we, we we're called to a high standard here. Um, but Muslim rulers who uh, oppress people, they're going to be blind on that day. The deaf and the dumb are those who are proud of their actions. Those who chew their tongues are the scholars. Listen to this, the scholars, the ulama, whose hands, who, those who chew on their tongues are the ulama and the judges whose conduct differed from their words, right? Um, that's a scary one, right? And that ought to scare every student of knowledge in our religion, right? Uh, we're all encouraged to seek knowledge in this religion, but knowledge calls you to right conduct. So, you know, we call this hypocrisy, Right, you don't practice what you preach. Like you get up on the member, and this is scary. Like this is a scary one for me because I get up there. You know, you talk about things that you yourself do not practice. You call people to engage in things that you yourself are not willing to do. This is what you look like on that day. You're chewing on your tongue. Those whose hands and feet are cut off are those who injured their neighbors. Right? The Prophet وسلم, said that the angel Gabriel kept coming to me, informing me of the rights of neighbors so much that I thought he was going to make my neighbors inherit from me. Meaning like we are called to treat our neighbors extremely well. Right? Extremely well. Like the Prophet thought he was going to have to write them into his will. <laughs> he didn't, but like that's where it stopped. Like neighbors have a ton of rights. So you are, you're, bad, you're bad to your neighbors. Not only are you not good to them, but you're bad to your neighbors, right? This is something that is punished on this day. The people crucified on trunks of fire are those who frequently denounce people to the authorities. Huh, think about that. People who denounce others to the authorities. Um, you thought snitches got stitches. They get crucifixion on a trunk of fire. Right? I mean, but understand, this is the reality that they lived in this world. You just aren't seeing it right now. But this is the reality, even now. This is the weight, this is the gravity of these things that we do in this world. It's just as serious here. It's not like, you know, it's, it's a play, it's a game in this world and everything, all of this comes afterwards. No, this is all happening right now. We just don't perceive it yet. Those fouler than putrid cadavers are those who enjoyed passions and pleasures, but withheld God's due in their wealth. So, you know, uh, this one, you actually see a little bit of a glimpse of mercy in it. Um, those who enjoyed passions and pleasures Right? I think probably we all do that to some degree. And this is talking about unlawful passions and pleasures. Right? Like we take part in things that entice us that we ought not take part in. 
But this says specifically that those who do that and withhold charity, they don't give and charity is required of us, but they withhold what is due by God. There's a little bit of mercy here. There's a little bit of breathing room. Thank God, right? Um, you know, if you are someone who indulges in these things, at least give charity, at least give in charity. And those who wear robes, the robes of tar, are the arrogant, the boastful, and the conceited. So, you know, this is a serious day. This is a serious day. But it's not doing anything but showing us how serious this life was. This life uh, means something. There is meaning to everything that we do. So when we are arrogant, when we are boastful, we ought to understand that the reality that we are manifesting when we act that way is a robe made out of tar. That's the reality of what we're doing. And each of our actions in each of our states has a reality. And there are also beautiful states that will be manifested on that day. There are lovely things that you will see that you cannot see in this world on the day of judgment because that is what people manifested during their lives. So we come eventually to a place called the Malkif, which is like the place of standing. This is where we stand before God. And this is where we await our judgment. And here again, like we start to see glimpses of God's mercy. Like even though this day is incredibly frightening, we start to see glimpses of God's mercy. God talks about seven different types of people who will receive his shade on that day. And this is referring to the shade of his throne. The day of judgment is going to be a very hot day where God says that he brings the sun down above the earth much closer than it is now. And that part of the, uh, the trial of this day is the heat that we will endure. But there are people who will receive shade. So he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, seven kinds of people will be shaded by God under his shade on that day when no shade will exist save for his. A just leader, a just leader. So we saw what the reality of the oppressive leader was earlier. Now we see that the just leader receives God's shade. And this tells you something about those in positions of authority. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Like if you can actually manage to be a just leader, like a ruler, a politician, a king or a president or what have you, if you can do that and be just, that is so difficult that God is willing to shade you on this day. So pay attention to, to what's being said here. Because, you know, a lot of the things that are related about this day are like, hey, like these are maybe the things I want to sort of like look out for and try to engage in in this life. So there's the just leader. And then there's the young person who grew up in the worship of God. How you spend your youth is incredibly important, right? What you choose to do with that time. Because when you're young, the world is open to you. You can do anything. The older you get, the narrower your options get, right? Less becomes possible, right? You have kids, you, uh, you buy a house, you get rooted somewhere, and, you know, the things that you can go out and do with your life get shorter. That list gets shorter. But you're young and you can do anything, 
You're young and you can travel the world. You're young and you can be with whoever you want to be with. You can do whatever type of work you want to do. So God is saying the young person who spends their youth worshiping him, this is a big thing. You chose to use that energy and that time that you had for the worship of God. He will shade you on this day. And then the person whose heart was attached to the mosques. And this simply means like you go there, right? You, you make it one of your frequent stops. You don't, uh, you don't like forget about it uh, on your way home. Oh, it's, it's mugger time and I'm passing by the mosque. Stop in. That will attach your heart to that place of worship. And in attaching your heart to it, you receive God's shade on this day. Two people who had love for each other for the sake of God came together in this and separated in it. So this is an easy one. This is an engage in this. This is an easy one. I love Israel. He's a, he's a dear friend. I've known him for a few years now. And I love him for God's sake. I love him for my sake too. But I love him for God's sake. I love him for the sake of God. He could slap me in the face and I could dislike him personally and I would still love him for God's sake. That's what that means, right? Like you don't have, you're not necessarily motivated by you, your own sort of selfish desires. You just, you love them because you love God and they remind you of God. I have that relationship with Israel. So every time I meet with Israel, I can make an intention yeah, I'm going to see him. We're going to grab coffee. We're going to chit-chat. It's going to be great. But also, I'm going to see him because I want to be reminded of God. Uh, I want to uh, have relationships like that in my life. So I make that intention, and that transforms that action. You do that. You find one person, and you do that. You will be a person who receives God's shade on that day. Now, look, this is getting broader. A just ruler, that's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to be a just ruler. It's really easy to love someone for God's sake and to meet with them on that basis and to remember God when you meet them and to remember God when you depart from them. This tells you something about God's mercy. He wants us to have it. He wants us to have it. All we have to do is reach out and take it. It's that easy. It's that easy. Any of us can do this one. And this is one, okay, we're going to get into uh, a charged topic, which is gender. Um, but this is real. This is real. And this, is, this gets into some of the differences between men and women. A man, uh, where is it? Uh, a man who, when a woman of rank and beauty attempted to seduce him, said, I fear God. So a woman of rank and beauty you know, I heard, <laughs> I heard someone say to Abedullah Evans, our teacher, for the, the Tuesday night class, you know, Muhammad Ali, the boxer, is not a good role model. Because, I mean, look, he, like, you know, had, he had an affair, right? And you know what Abedullah said? Do you know how hard that, <laughs> that is? Do you know how hard that is for a man who, in a position like his, who is being called by women of rank and beauty, wherever he traveled, wherever he traveled, he would have women who came to him. Do you know how hard it would be for a man to resist that? God is saying that this is so difficult for a man. 
that, that is difficult for a man. So you actually resist that. For God's sake, he will shade you on that day. He said Muhammad Ali is an excellent role model. He, was, he had human failings like any other man. But uh, you try being in his position and performing any better, right? You try it. Um, but this is a serious thing. You can remember God in a moment like that. God will remember you on this day. A man who concealed his charity so that his left hand did not know what his right hand spent. Meaning like you do it so secretly that like no one knows what you're giving in charity. And a man, uh, and when we say man, we're talking about people generally here. Uh, the person who remembered God when alone and whose eyes overflowed with tears. So if you've ever had these moments where you're praying by yourself, maybe you're asking God for forgiveness. Maybe you're remembering all of the great things that God has done for you and you weep out of gratitude or you weep out of sorrow and remorse. You have a moment like that. That's a moment that gives you shade on this day. These are all great things. These are things that we can aspire for in this life. And that shade that we will receive on that day, again, it's, it's nothing but a manifestation of the reality of what we do in this world. Now, at this point, I said we've come to the mulkif. We've come to the place of standing. And this is where people start going from prophet to prophet. This is a dire situation, and they're panicking. And it's, it's said that on that day, they're saying, nafsi, nafsi, um, myself, myself, meaning the only thing concern, that anyone is concerned with is their selves, such that you know, a child comes to its mother. A mother is not concerned about her child on that day. She's concerned about herself. We, all of us, will go to the prophets, we will go to Moses, we will go to Abraham, we will go to Jesus, peace be upon them all. We will go to each and every one of them, and we will say to them, please intercede for us. Meaning, please ask God to have mercy on us. Please tell him to relieve us of this situation. And we will find each one of them saying, this is not our job. This... Uh, we are like, we are in your state today. They too are saying nafsi, nafsi. They're only concerned for themselves. That is how dire this situation is. Until we come to the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, whose name, one of his names, is Ash-Shafi, the intercessor. And he will intercede for us on this day. This is why He's the best of creation. No one can do what he will do on that day. This is why he's a mercy unto all the worlds. No one will have mercy on anyone else on this day, except for him. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole hadith about that, but um, you get... One of the things I want to mention, because I, I think this is really beautiful. This is really beautiful. And, um, you know, as, as someone who has lost a nephew, I lost a nephew. I've never lost a child, thank God, and, and may God protect me from that. Uh, but I've lost a nephew. Um, one of the hadith about this day 
is that for those who lose their children, before their children reach the age of puberty, so that you lose a, a young child, right? If you know anyone who has been in that situation, you know that like nothing in this world can soothe that pain. Nothing can soothe that pain. It's, it's impossible. Now, but again, you see a reality on the day of judgment that you cannot see in this world. Because there is no consolation in this world, there is nothing that could possibly take away that pain, your consolation will come on this day. So those children that you lost, and remember, this is a hot day, the sun has been brought down, your children will come to you carrying water, and they will quench your thirst. Like you, the people who are sweating, who are thirsty, who are clamoring to be released from the state that they're in, they're going to look at the people who lost their children, and they're going to be envious of them because they're going to have their thirst quenched on that day. And this, this is such a beautiful thing because it really shows that God understands the pain that we live through, the things that we deal with in this life. It's not like, oh, well, you're, you lost a child. You can have another. You think of all like the insensitive things that people say. Uh, oftentimes, in an, a, a, a brutish attempt to really console you when you're going through something like this, you say, well, you, you'll have another chance. You know, like, no, nothing will bring back that child. God is saying here, like, I know that. I know that nothing will bring back your child. But the reality that will be manifested for you on the day of judgment will show you that you're, it was not in vain. It was not in vain. There is a recompense for that loss that you suffered. So I just wanted to mention that. I, I love that. It, it, it hits home for me. Um, but we come to the Mokif and we stand before God individually. Now, this in itself tells you something important. Like ultimately, we are all responsible for our own lives, right? Um, we die alone, right? Like no one can die with us. We, we have to go through that journey ourselves. We are buried alone. We are raised up alone, even though we're surrounded by people. It's nafsi, nafsi, right? We're alone. And when we stand before God, we're alone. I say this because I see so much victim mentality in this country nowadays. And not to say that people aren't getting wrong, they are. There's, there's a lot of oppression, right? Which is why one of the people that God will punish on this day are the oppressors. But, but ultimately, like when it comes to us and how we live our lives, when it comes to the type of person that we want to be, we have to understand that when we go before God, we go by ourselves. We answer for our deeds and we're accountable for the life that we live ultimately. And so we come to stand before God and let's see what the Prophet Wasallam says about this moment. All of the people will be made to stand before God to be questioned about their deeds. And the Messenger of God Wasallam said, there is not one of you who will not be spoken to directly by God with no interpreter between them. 
And so this will be the first time that this happens for us. You shall look to the right and see nothing but that which you had sent ahead, and to the left and see nothing but that which you had sent ahead, meaning like your deeds. Everything that you have done, that's what you sent ahead of you. That's what is waiting for you on this day. Before you and um, before you and see nothing but the fire before your face. So protect yourself from the fire, even with as little as half a date as charity. So again, we're coming back to charity here. Charity wards off hardship on this day. And he's saying, even if all you have to give is half of a date, which if you've ever eaten a date, it's not much. It's not much. Just give that half of a date to protect yourself from the fire on this day. Ward it off. So much of this knowledge that we're getting about this day is actually instructive. It's actually teaching us how to be successful on this day. It's not just here to scare us. It's not just here to tell us how serious the judgment will be. It is here to tell us how to be successful. And he said, the feet of a man will not move from the malkif until he has questioned about four things. And so pay attention. You don't move from this spot until you're questioned about four things. This is what God is going to ask you about. Your youth and how you spent it. Your life and how you lived it. Your wealth, how you earned it and how you spent it. And in one version of this hadith, your actions and what they were. So your youth, your life, your wealth, and your actions. These are the things that God will ask you about. So these are the things that we ought to be very, very scrupulous about. We ought to be very careful in what we do with these things. We ought to spend them in good ways. Now, let's talk about mercy just a little bit. Um, now, at, when we're at the spot, when we're at the mulkif, the place where we stand before God, the Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, says, God will draw his believing servant near to him until he shelters him. And then he will ask him about his sins. And his servant will keep confessing to them one after the other until he fears that he is lost. So it's like God's asking you, like, tell me, you know, tell me what you did wrong. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I do this with my sons now. I hear a crash in the other room. Idris, come here. Tell me what happened. Said, nothing, nothing, nothing happened. I heard a crash. Oh, well, yeah, Ismail is his baby brother. Yeah, Ismail knocked something over. Um, oh, you didn't have anything to do with it? And you press him a little bit. And then he's like, well, you know, I, did, I was there. I was trying to stop him. And, you know, then eventually, like, it all comes out. This is what happens with us and God. <laughs> You know, we keep confessing our sins to God at this place, at this mulkif, until we fear that everything is lost. And then God will say, I concealed your sins for you when you were in the world. Right? Like, half this dirt that you did, no one knew about it. Right? And think about how much we have like that. Like, if people really knew, like half the story, right? For most of us, we'd be mortified. It's true for me. 
I think it's true for most of us, right? But God is saying here, you know, I concealed all of that for you when you were alive in the dunya, in the world. So I will forgive you for those things today. I forgive you. I didn't want to hold you to account for it in, during your life. I don't want to hold you to account for it here. God is merciful. And this is the thing, ultimately, while this day is incredibly frightening, there's no way around that. It's incredibly frightening. This is a day where, you know, we will see terrifying things that we could never have imagined. We will also see acts of mercy that we can po not possibly imagine. Now, what does that mean? Well, we can't really conceptualize what that means, but there is a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ tells us that on the day that God created the heavens and the earth, he created 100 parts of mercy. Each part can fill what is between the heavens and the earth. So 100 parts of mercy, each of which can fill what is between the heavens and the earth. He made one part of mercy for the earth, from which a mother has compassion for her child. Animals and birds have compassion for each other. On the day of resurrection, he will perfect his mercy, meaning he will expose us to the other 99 parts. So think about that. Every ounce of mercy that we have ever experienced, and we experience it first and foremost through our mothers, right? You think about how merciful our mothers are with us, right? They carry us, they give birth to us, they nurse us. They, there is a point in our lives where we will not survive without our mothers, right? We're completely and utterly helpless, that is a mercy which we talked, I, I talked about it in a khutbah recently. Like that's a mercy you cannot repay. There is nothing a person can do in this world to repay their mother for everything that she has done for them. Nothing. There are things you can do to repay your father. Sorry, dad. I'm always like apologizing to the dads, <laughs> but it's, it's just the reality. There's nothing you can do to repay your mother. So you think about all of that mercy that you've experienced primarily at the hands of your mothers. And even if we don't have good relationships with our mothers, which some people don't, like we still experience mercy through them. That's only one part out of a hundred. That's one part out of a hundred. We're going to see the rest of it on this day. I can't imagine what that means. I don't think any of us can. I don't think any of us can. So this is going to be scary. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to see that what God says to us is the truth, which is that no one, no one will be wronged even the weight of an atom on this day. Some people God will deliver his justice to, right? And for those people that he delivers his justice to, they will not be wronged. Like, they will get exactly what they deserve. But God will not deal with everyone, and God knows best. But if we're talking about one part out of 100, you can imagine that God is going to be merciful rather than just with a lot of people. And this is called having a good opinion of God, like believing this to be true, that what we will see in our judgments 
is mercy, that it will overcome God's judgment and his wrath. And, you know, this question comes up. What about God's punishment? I mean, that's a, it's not a pleasant thing to think about. So what about that? Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, like, to, I, I've taken note of, like, the types of people who seem to have issue with that. And one thing that I've noticed is that no one who has ever come from a very difficult life, like who's suffered like real hardship in this world, has had trouble understanding that for some people, God is going to be just and like he's going to punish them. But we understand, like Allah says, uh, like no one but the worst of the worst is going to be thrown into the fire. But there are people who will deserve that, right? Like, there are injustices that are never addressed in this world. In fact, if you think about it, probably the majority of the injustice that is perpetrated throughout human history, there's no, there's no recompense for it in this world. Most people do not have justice delivered to them in this world. For most people, justice will come in the next life. And that's just like, you know, if you are lucky enough to be the beneficiary of a functioning justice system, like you are extremely blessed. Um, not everyone, even in this developed first world country, mashallah, look at where we live, like it's great. But not even everyone who lives here has access to this. You can think about people who lived, you know, uh, in other situations throughout history. Like, where is their justice? Right? Where is justice for them? This is the day that they see it. Um, and I have to admit, like, I come from a privileged background. I come from a very privileged background. The idea of punishment was something that upset me, like ultimate punishment, like hellfire punishment. That upset me for quite a long time. Uh, I was like, well, you know, like, eventually, like, you know, finite sin, infinite punishment, like, what's the deal? I don't get it. Like, mathematically, it doesn't, doesn't compute. Um, and, you know, then I, I experienced a severe injustice once, and then I kind of got it. I had, a, I had a cousin who was murdered, actually. I had a cousin who was gunned down by a police officer, no less. He was off duty. Um, but the police in my town, they covered it up. My hometown, they covered it up. And, you know, I had to ask myself a lot of tough questions. What's going to happen to his daughter? Where's justice for her? You know, what about my aunt and my uncle who loved him? Where's justice for them? You know, there is, um, there was a whole world that was snatched from a lot of people when that happened. And it was like, suddenly it just clicked. Wow. Most people don't get justice in this world. But the reality of this day is that we see things as they are. Recompense, whether it is difficult or whether it is beautiful, we see it on that day. So, you know, you can take all of that with a grain of salt and do with it what you will. It's simply my reflection on it. But for those of us who do have difficulty with these things, please understand you're not the only one who has difficulty with it. Um, but, you know, sometimes these perceptions do change with life experience. Um, 
So after we are judged, after we stand before God, our deeds are weighed. Um, and we cross what is called the Sirat, which is the, the bridge from the world of the Day of Judgment into paradise. So the Prophet وسلم, says that then after this standing at the mulkif, at the place of standing, then a balance shall be erected for the weighing of deeds. And God the Exalted has said, and we set a just balance for the day of rising so that no soul is wronged in anything. Though it be the weight of a mustard grain, we bring it forth and sufficient are we as reckoners. The weighing that day is true. As for those whose scales are heavy, they are the triumphant. And as for those whose scales are light, they are those who have lost their souls because of the wrong that they used to do to our revelations. Good and evil deeds shall both be weighed. Those people whose good acts outweigh the bad are the victors and the fortunate, while those whose evil deeds outweigh the good have lost and failed. As for those whose good and evil deeds are equal, it is said that they will be stood on the araf, which are, I believe these are like walls between the garden and the fire, after which, God's through God's mercy, they will go on into the garden. It is related that there will be an angel standing at the balance, who when the balance is heavy, will announce, oh, so-and-so, son of so-and-so, or daughter of so-and-so, has a heavy balance. They will be in such bliss as will never be followed by hardship. And when the balance is light, they will proclaim so-and-so, son of so-and-so, or daughter of so-and-so, has a light balance. They will suffer and never know happiness again. The bridge, or the sirat, shall be thrown across hell, and mankind will be ordered to cross it. And it is related that the sirat, this bridge, is sharper than the blade of a sword, narrower than a hair, and that people who have to cross it will do so with their deeds. Those whose faith is more perfect and who are quicker to obedience, will, they will be light and they shall cross it swiftly as lightning. Others will cross it as swiftly as the wind, others like birds, others like the best of horses, others like riders, others like strong men burdened by their deeds. Others will, be, others will go on hands and knees, some will be scorched by the fire, and others will tumble into it. The first to cross will be the messengers. May blessings and peace be upon, him, upon them, each of them saying, O Lord, save us, save us. And the very first to cross will be Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, while the first nation to cross shall be his. Trustworthiness and kinship bonds will be sent to stand by the bridge. It will be moist and slippery, and they will have hooks like thorns of, of a thorny bush, which will take whoever they are there, whoever they are ordered to take. But the bonds of trustworthiness uh, and kinship will aid those who engaged in them. This is like the final trial of this day. And, you know, again, it sounds absolutely terrifying. It sounds absolutely terrifying, but the reality of our lives manifest in this moment to get us across this bridge, 
So this is not something that you know ought to um, really petrify us. Like if uh, if paralysis is your reaction to this, please understand that that is not what it is meant to do. What it is meant to do is give you the sense of awe, like God is majestic, God is mighty, He is powerful. Uh, you know, he is like that bear that I mentioned seeing on the trail that day. Like my fate was in that bear's hands, right? Our fates are in God's hands. That is intended to be a comfort for us because all we do, like all we do, we just, we live a life in obedience. And he asks very little. We're going to get into that, in fact, eventually in this class. Like, how do we have to live? When we get into the section on Islam, right? What God asks of us is, in fact, very, very little. Like, if you were to, like, list out all of the actions that are forbidden and place them next to, like, a list of actions that are permitted, like, the permitted actions are, like, far, far more numerous, right? Um, Omer is not in here anymore, but, you know, I heard him put it very beautifully once. He's like, you think about, like, what you have to do to, like, earn your way in this world, right? Like, you go to school for at least 18 years. Most of us, for longer than that, we go to college, higher education. I was in school for, you know, mashallah, like 33 years. It took me a little longer than, <laughs> than most. Um, you have to pay 25 30% of your wealth to the IRS every year, right? You have to work 60 years to get that retirement. Like, think about that. That's to make your way in this dunya. That's to make your way in this world. God asks five prayers a day. These prayers are short, right? They take like five minutes each. He asks one month of fasting every year. And one pilgrimage in your entire lifetime. And get, give 2.5% of your wealth. You wish the IRS would give you that deal. 2.5%. God, I would jump for joy. <laughs> now, you, you give 2.5% of your wealth to God, who is Al-Jalal, the majestic, all-inspiring. Now, the IRS is not Jalal. <laughs> the IRS is not all-inspiring. They are not majestic. They're petty bureaucrats. I'm sorry for anyone who works at the IRS. Excuse me. I try not to get political. I'm mad at them. They just sent me a letter, whatever. Um, and I have to give them 30, 25, 30%. It's like, you know, you could at least be majestic. So I feel like all inspired when I give you 25 or 30%. But like, you know, like maybe if they come to your house, Maybe when you get audited, that's when they get majestic. But I haven't experienced it yet. But you think about what you have to do to pave your way for this life that we live in this country right now. And what God asks of you, like God is giving you uh, so little to do. Like, you know, just come to me in these five ways, like these five pillars of Islam. Come to me in these five ways. That's all I ask. That's all I ask. And you do that, there's no fear for you. In fact, you're going to look forward to meeting me. It's going to be, you know, like the, for our, our great saints of our religion, like we refer to their deaths as their ors, 
like their, their wedding night, right? Why? Because they're going back to their beloved. They're, they're going back to the one that they've been working so hard in this life to meet, right? So, you know, it is a joyous reunion with God. It is not something that has to terrify us and petrify us, but God is mighty. God is mighty. So that whatever fear we do hold is coupled with absolute, uh, sort of rapture. His majesty. And, and that's what we're trying to achieve in recounting this. And that is, inshallah, what we achieve through understanding that this is part of our faith. Believing in the day of judgment, in this life that we will live eventually, this is a part of our faith. Because it tells us something very important about ourselves and very important about our Lord. Okay, we'll end it there. Thank you all for being here. A'udhu billahi minash shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Wal asr inna l-insana lafi khusr ila ladhina amanu wa amilu salihati wa tawasu bil haqqi wa tawasu bi sabr. Ameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.